A New Exodus, The Bachelor, Walking Backwards, and Did Jeremiah Anticipate COVID-19? <laughs> All that and many more miscellanies today on The Backdrop. Welcome once again to The Backdrop. I am, as always, Curtis. We are looking at chapters 15 through 17 of Jeremiah this week, and there are quite a few little details that I thought might be interesting to delve into that contribute to our understanding of these chapters, even if they aren't the most important or profound points that Jeremiah is making. And then at the end, I have one or two longer thoughts that arise in this part of our book as well. So let's get right to it. In chapter 15, verse 6, God responds to the people's accusation that God has abandoned them by saying, hey, 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 hold on now. You have discarded me. Like, let's not get this backwards here. It seems like the people have been trying to like gaslight God or something because God has a counter accusation. You are going backwards. We've seen before that Jeremiah calls for the people over and over to turn, return, turn around, turn back. And this verse is giving us an image of the people having turned around all right, but then just started walking backwards instead. They're still going away from God down the path that leads to death, but they're trying to make it look like they've turned back to God. They're facing God after all, aren't they? I thought that was a great image of the hypocrisy of the people. And the verse closes by God saying, I am tired of relenting. And then in verse 7, I am bereaving, I'm destroying my people because of their ways from which they would not turn. This speaks again to the emotional weight of all this for God, which we've seen over and over in this book. God is emotionally worn out from holding back, from having to hold on to the sin of the people for so long like a parent who has to hold on to the destructive and dysfunctional choices of a child, and it wears them out. It's a foreshadowing of what was ultimately the solution to this cycle of wandering away that God's people went through again and again. Because Jesus, after all, holds on to, bears in himself the entirety of the sin of humanity. God is maybe emotionally worn out, but that does not stop God from going as far as God can to bring us home. Next little observation in chapter 15, verse 9, it refers to a mother of seven or one who has born seven, which if you're wondering why that particular type of motherhood is highlighted, the number seven was thought to be a number of completion or fulfillment. In the book of Revelation, when the mark of the beast of evil is referred to as 666, it's because six is one shy of seven. So 777 would be a number of perfection. 666 is a number of corruption. So a mother of seven is another way of saying a completely fulfilled woman. In that culture's understanding, of course. One who has born seven has completely fulfilled her duty. She has done her life's work to the fullest. She ought to be a picture of joy and contentment. But Jeremiah is saying, even she will be shamed and disgraced. Jeremiah is using the image to say that all will suffer. No matter how blessed they look, they will be suffering in the coming days. Next, jumping to chapter 16, verse 10, Yahweh warns Jeremiah that when Jeremiah says all these things to the people, they are going to respond, who? Us? What have we done? 
what is our waywardness and offense that we have committed? Which is pretty hilarious in a dark way, after all we've seen in this book so far. But it does feel true, doesn't it? That people would be so unaware that they would say, wait, we're in trouble? How? We're good people. How could this happen to us? I mean, sure, those bad people should be in trouble, but us? There's plenty of people who do that today as well. And then a few verses later in chapter 16, verse 18, God says that judgment is coming because of their profaning my country with their abominable corpses. They filled my own land with their outrages. Now, this seems a little harsh. I mean, the people are to blame for a lot, but getting mad about where their corpses fall seems a bit much. But this is actually a metaphor here. God isn't speaking of the literal corpses of the people, but rather of idols. Again, the people are profaning the country. They have filled the land with outrages. Elsewhere in the book, these words always refer to idolatry and injustice. And here, God is basically just heaping another insult onto the idols, who have been called lifeless and empty throughout the book. These idols are so lifeless, they're like corpses. It's striking to me just how many images and metaphors Jeremiah has for idols in this book. It's really creative and interesting. The image of an idol as a dead body is a really strong one. Chapter 17 is where we focused in the sermon this weekend, but there were a couple other little things in that chapter that we didn't get to then uh, that we can highlight as well. First, throughout the chapter, in John Golden Gay's translation, the word mind keeps showing up. In verse 1, the people's offenses have been engraved on the mind's tablet. In verse 9, the mind is more crooked than anything. But you may be familiar with a translation that says the heart is more deceitful than anything. So which is it, the mind or the heart? Well, literally, this chapter is using the Hebrew word for the anatomical heart. But in the ancient world, they had different ideas than we do about what the different parts of the body were for. And when Jeremiah says the heart, he means the place where thought and reason and your will happen. What we would usually call our mind. And which, what was science and all, we have located in our brains. So in Hebrew, heart is often better translated mind if we want to get at what is meant in the verse rather than what's literally there. And since we're on the subject, the ancient world thought of emotions as residing in the intestines. You know how you get a pit in your stomach when you're nervous? So often when a passage like some do in Jeremiah is talking about emotion, it will literally say guts. And last one for our purposes here, there are also several places in Jeremiah that talk about our conscience, knowing right and wrong, the Jiminy Cricket part of us. Well, those verses literally say kidneys because that's where they thought the governing of our conscience resided, in our kidneys. So, a little ancient anatomy for us all here. Heart equals mind, guts equals emotions, and kidneys equals conscience. Now, also in that verse, verse 9, the mind is more crooked than anything. The word Golden Gay translates crooked has a lot of meaning in it, including hard to understand or comprehend, deceitful, as it's often translated, opaque, just hard to see. It's actually from the same root word that the word Jacob comes from, as in Jacob and Esau, Jacob the trickster. In Genesis 27, 36, Esau, after finding that Jacob has stolen his birthright, says, was his name called Jacob because he would trip me now twice by the heels? 
My birthright he took, and look, now he's taken my blessing. In Hebrew, the name Jacob is Yaakob, and Heel is Hakeb, which shows up in the story of the birth when, when Jacob comes out grabbing onto his brother's heel. But there's also another play on words here too, because Hakab with a V instead of a B means crooked, deceitful, devious. And we've seen Jeremiah use that word several times to describe the people who have descended from Jacob, Yaakab, all these many years later. The people of Jacob, Yaakab, are Hakab, crooked. And while we're on the topic of translation, later in the chapter, in verse 11, the person who trusts in unjustly acquired wealth is, in the end, proved to be a, and many translations use the word fool. But many of the scholars I read pointed out that scoundrel is a far more accurate word. The emphasis here is not on the stupidity, the foolishness of the man who trusts in the wrong thing, but instead the emphasis is on his unjust deeds, which will be exposed for what they are in the end. He is a scoundrel. And then if we look a little further in chapter 17, it ends with an extended discussion of the Sabbath. How if the people keep the Sabbath, they will prosper, and if they don't, they will be destroyed. In a certain light, this passage seems to come out of nowhere. Jeremiah has spent far more time talking about idols and injustice and where we put our trust, and then all of a sudden it's about the Sabbath. But we need to keep in mind that the Sabbath is, in many ways, a microcosm of the covenant that God has made with Israel. The Sabbath is one of the premier examples of the people of Israel living a holy that is set apart, different from the other nations, a holy existence. There is no logical reason to observe a Sabbath, to not work one of the days during which you can produce something of value. And yet, God commands people to do so. It requires a covenant that one puts their trust in Yahweh. It requires trust that God will take care of us to the extent that we don't need to work all seven days. Six will do. It is, among other things, a weekly reminder of the covenant, a weekly reminder of where our trust ultimately lies, not in our own hard work or productivity, but with the God who promises to take care of us. So why is the Sabbath determinant on whether people will be blessed or not? It's not some sort of weird legalistic thing. It rather is a reflection that by observing the Sabbath, people are reaffirming their trust in God. And the blessings that will come to them because of that will be there for them. Sometimes passages like this one have been used by Christians to justify a reductive and erroneous perspective on Judaism. That it is just legalistic. It's about following arbitrary rules and regulations as opposed to the religion of grace that is introduced by Jesus. But of course, Jesus does not reject the Sabbath himself. Instead, he reaffirms the Sabbath, saying that the Sabbath is made for people, not people for the Sabbath. The Sabbath, looked at properly, is a reminder of our reliance on God, a reminder that we put our trust in God, and a reminder that God has been and will continue to be good to us, providing for our needs even as we take an illogical rest. The Sabbath is about liberation, not legalism, which is why Jesus's actions of healing on the Sabbath are not an undermining of a legalistic practice in the name of grace, but instead are a highlighting 
of the grace notes that were there all along, if you know where to look. Now, I wanted to highlight two more things that show up in these chapters in a little more depth. First, we have what happens in chapter 16, where Jeremiah is commanded by God not to marry, not to have a family, not to go to funerals, not to go to weddings, not to go to parties. Jeremiah is commanded to opt out of society. In effect, as if COVID-19 had struck 2,700 years ago or so. This, some of the scholars I've been reading point out, would have been among the hardest parts of Jeremiah's job. God is commanding Jeremiah to be a complete pariah. His actions would have been virtually incomprehensible in his day. In fact, one scholar I was reading pointed out that there isn't, so far as we know, even a word in ancient Hebrew for an unmarried man. A bachelor was virtually unheard of. So why is God asking Jeremiah to undertake such a difficult road? For one, Jeremiah is acting out the idea, putting flesh on the reality that God has also opted out of Judah's social existence. God has removed God's presence from the people in the same way that Jeremiah is removing his own presence. In verse 5, God says as explanation for some of these things, because I have gathered up my well-being from this people. Yahweh's words. I've gathered up my well-being, my commitment, and my compassion. These words, well-being, commitment, compassion, they are big deal words in God's relationship with Israel. Words that affirm God's commitment to the covenant. God is saying, just as Jeremiah is completely removing himself from your life, so am I. The covenant is null and void. It's over. But the key is that God says, from this people. Because we know from elsewhere in Jeremiah that God's presence and God's commitment are not being removed forever. And there's a second way that Jeremiah's actions are speaking God's message to the people. And that is that Jeremiah is foreshadowing what will soon become reality for all the people. Jeremiah is not married and has no children. Just like people will soon have their wives and children ripped away from them. Jeremiah won't attend parties or funerals, just like the people will soon be unable to have these normal aspects of communal life, the things that bind society together and give it meaning. Jeremiah's actions are a foreshadowing of the doom that is soon to come to the society as a whole. And one last thing that is important to highlight in this passage. This is one of so, so many passages that show the lie of the prosperity gospel for what it is. The idea that faithfulness to God will result in blessing and wealth and health and physical healing, that all you need is enough faith and all will be well. Jesus is, of course, the prime example of this, whose obedience and faithfulness to God led to betrayal and abandonment, suffering and death. But there are so many examples of a non-Jesus-y variety of this reality as well in Scripture. Even when we reject this idea intellectually, many of us still struggle with this nagging idea that when things aren't going our way, we must have done something wrong. We must be being punished or why else would God do this to us? But there are far too many examples in the pages of scripture of the most faithful people undergoing suffering. And yet, and this is where we went this past weekend in the sermon, those same people often find that in the end, God has been with them and sustained them all along. I know finally this week, in the second half of chapter 16, we get a slightly new way of describing what God is going to do in the future. Chapter 16, verse 14, and the bit following, says this, Therefore now, days are coming, 
Yahweh's words, when it will no more be said, as Yahweh lives who brought up the Israelites from the country of Egypt, but rather, as Yahweh lives who brought up the Israelites from the northern country and from all the countries where he had driven them, I shall bring them back to their country, which I gave their ancestors. And then in verse 19, Yahweh, my strength and stronghold, my refuge in the day of trouble, to you the nations will come from earth's ends and say, Our ancestors possessed utter falsehood, emptiness, with nothing in them that would achieve anything. God, this passage is saying, will bring about a new exodus, greater even than the first one. And remember, the first one was the defining moment of Israel's history. It was what, in several senses, the nation was founded upon. And God says, you ain't seen nothing yet. This same idea is picked up in several places in the New Testament, where what God is doing through Jesus is also seen as a new exodus. And both in Jeremiah and in the pages of the New Testament, this new exodus is explicitly linked to a mission to the Gentiles that the nations would come to know that the things in which they had put their trust were empty, just as Israel has learned the same, that the nations would come to acknowledge that Yahweh is the only place for trusting. We, of course, are the result of this new exodus. We are the nations that God has gathered in to be God's people alongside Israel and through Israel. And we get to be a part of inviting still more people to join this new exodus that God is working in our world. That's enough for chapters 15 to 17. Uh, We'll be back next week. The backdrop will be on chapters 18 to 20 next week. And Meredith will be preaching about the pain that Jeremiah has suffered in following and being faithful to God. And she's going to be jumping through um, a lot of the places in these first 20 chapters of Jeremiah where that idea comes up. So we hope you will join us for that. If you are using this Backdrop podcast for reflection or for discussion, we will post some questions in the show notes on the website, PomonaValleyChurch.org, where you can also find a link to join us next Sunday at 9 a.m. So hopefully you will join us for that. And until then, bye. Bye.